If you don't have a Bible, please do hold on to the church when there's a gift from LBC. Do we delight to give folk the Word of God? So if you need a Bible, please just hold on to it there. Acts chapter 1 and 2, page 855. You'll be pleased here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I will read sections of it, however, so just follow along with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And brothers and sisters, we're part of the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they looked on him, he was lifted up on a cloud, took him out of their sight. And I love this, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, get on with it. <laughs> or in this translation, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up into heaven will come as the same way you, or will come again as you saw him go into heaven. If you want to jump down there to chapter two, chapter two. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested in each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing these Galileans speak in his own language. They were amazed and said, are not these guys from Galilee? How do they owe our own tongue? Parthians and Medes, Almonites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia. How do they know Egypt, parts of Libya, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans and Arabs? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and they were amazed and perplexed, saying to each other, what does this mean? But others mock, saying, oh, they're filled with new wine. Then Peter gets up to explain the gift of the Spirit from Joel, which we'll look at. But if you come down with me to verse 23 there, he then talks to them about Jesus. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man, attests you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And I love verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for death to hold him. Isn't that amazing? 
David, he goes, quote Psalm 16, which I read at the start. Brothers, then, verse 29, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus God raised up with that we are all witnesses, being exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Jesus, the Christ, the one you have crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we have sung about your higher throne. We have sung about you as the risen king, and all these are true. We have asked that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. And that we need, that I need. So Holy Spirit, come and help me in my weakness to bring the living word of God to the people of God. That you would give me the ability to speak clearly and what you would have me to say. That I would glorify you, Lord, in our midst. And that that glory would be two ways as your word goes out that we would have ears to hear what you're saying to us. Not the man, not the preacher, but what you are saying to us. So speak, O Lord, and give us clarity to hear. And if there is any in our midst this morning who do not owe you, Lord Jesus, may they see the delight, the joy, the salvation it is to know you. For in knowing you is life in all its fullness. So, Holy Spirit, come and help, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Come with me to a country far away. Not a galaxy far away, but a country far away. It's the 8th of June. And as we come to this country on the 8th of June, there's an old man lying in a bed. And his end is drawing near, and around his bed are his three sons. And they're sitting at the bed of this man who was famous in the country. His fame was not because of who he was, but what he did for Jesus Christ, a fame that would last to this very day. And this old man is a peculiar old man. He's not who you'd expect to be the unofficial king of a country. He was a cobbler. He was a cobbler who mended shoes, who worked in the midst of rural England for many, many years. And yet, he's here. He's a man who formed the particular Baptist society for the propagation of the gospel amongst the heathen. It's not quite a title. And he and two of his friends, Andrew Fuller and John Sutcliffe, formed what is the modern-day Baptist Missionary Society. The man's name is William Carey. And as Carey ends his course and ends his race, as he falls, as he himself said, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on the kind arms of Jesus. He left a nation transformed by the gospel. To this day, if you go to modern India, Kerry, even amongst the current prime minister's cabinet, is a man who is not touched by criticism. And he preached a sermon. 
way back at the start of his career when he was a poor pastor who was a cobbler in the middle of Northamptonshire, not far from here. And he preached from Isaiah 54, verse 2 to 3, and it talked about who will go, how will you send the gospel out? And he preached his famous quote, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And that was the single vision that drove him for many, many years to see the gospel go to the furthest reaches of the world and to see a nation transformed by the goodness of Jesus Christ. William Carey was quite some man. When he got up and preached that sermon, full of zeal, full of passion, an old boy turned around him and said, Mr. Carey, if God intends the heathen to be saved, he'll not send you. And yet Carey persevered. He expected great things from God, and he attempted great things for God. I'm told in 2021 that the population of Lincoln City is 103,900 people. Lincoln itself is experiencing growth. We are the fastest growing area in the country outside of London. And in the population of Lincolnshire, there is 1.08 million people. Now, if we wanted to reach 10% of that population, which is 100,000, just 10%, we need 1,000 churches the size of LBC. It's quite a figure, isn't it? To reach but 10% of the population of Lincolnshire, we need 10 or, sorry, 1,000 churches the size of LBC. Should we expect great things from God? Should we attempt great things for God? Today is Pentecost, the day in the church calendar which we mark, and there's controversy about this. Some folks say it shouldn't be called this, some folks say it should. The birthday of the church. I don't mind the term birthday because birthdays are a strange thing, aren't they? I don't know if you've noticed recently this, this trend to throw great birthday parties for one-year-old kids, which always makes me laugh because the kid usually comes in falls asleep in the cake or something like that. <laughs> birthdays are strange things, aren't we? We use them to look forward and to look back. Is that just me and my birthdays? I know they're getting sort of, I'm getting further away from that date that was zero. We use them to look forward and look back to remember. Well, the Jewish people did that in the day of Pentecost back in the Bible. Pentecost was one of the three festivals commanded in Deuteronomy 16 verse 10 for the people of Israel to come to Jerusalem to give thanks and to remember the harvest, to remember God's goodness, to remember God's faithfulness so all the nation would descend on the, the Jerusalem in the day of Pentecost. It was a command to keep it. They were looking back to God's goodness and God's provision. They were looking forward to God's future promises and deliverance. And so in this time of expectation, as the people gather, Jesus had his disciples in the midst of this, in an upper room, in a small corner of Jerusalem. He had told them in his promises here to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit in the midst of all this. Look with me here at verse 1. The waiting time. Chapter 1. Sorry, chapter 1. The waiting time. Jesus had commanded them clearly. I mean, let's not forget the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. Isn't that amazing? That he has walked out of that tomb alive forevermore. We serve a risen Savior. He loves, he lives, he walks with me, he talks with me. Jesus is alive. How often we forget that? How often we devolve to practical atheism, do we not? Oh, yes, we believe Jesus is alive, but friends, Jesus is alive. Amen. Thank you. 
And he's alive and he's risen from the grave and he's appeared all over the place to 500 at once. He's appeared to the apostles. He's appeared eating and doing all sorts of things. He is alive. He's not a ghost. He's not a myth. He is the risen physical savior of the world. And he has a mission for his disciples. And so he teaches them. He spends time teaching them about himself, telling them about his goodness and his mission. I would give everything, all the books I have to have been with those disciples for those 40 days. Imagine that, a Bible study with Jesus. That'd be great. I wish I could even eavesdrop. I wish, I wish Doctor Who, whatever that was real, so you could time travel back there and just, just see it. And he teaches them, and I much reminded them of the parables that we know so well. To the apostles who were, some of them were Jewish nationalists who didn't like Gentiles, Jesus would have reminded them that he had sheep from other folds to go. He had sheep in Lincoln to reach. He had reminded the parables to pray and never give up, like the persistent widow with the judge to keep knocking on the judge's door until he answers and so pray like that. He had reminded them that he is the true vine, that they must draw strength from him. If they want to see fruit in their lives, it's not through wishing and trying hard, it's drawing strength from him. He taught them all this. And then we get to verse 6, and I love the patience of our Savior. After spending these amazing 40 days with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God, what do the apostles do? They turn around and say, Lord, you can see them tugging in his jumper. Lord, when are you going to kick the Romans out of town? Now, if I had been Jesus, my hand would have went firmly into the face. But he's patient with them. And he says to them, guys, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And by the way, that's the mission statement for the book of Acts, and that's the mission statement for the church. So he goes up into heaven. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And that's important. I mean, one commentary around it says it seems a bit strange that Jesus sort of disappears up into the cloud. But what does that mean? It means he's gone back into heaven to be crowned king of all, to receive all authority. Hebrews tells us this. That once his work was done, Hebrews 1 verse 3, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We just saw the coronation, what, three weeks ago? What was that all about? It was about King Charles becoming king officially, a name and all that. The ascension is King Jesus' coronation. And he sits down at the right hand of the throne that controls the whole universe. And that's important for us to know. Romans, again, Richard read from Romans 8. Later on in Romans 8, it talks about how we have won at the throne praying for us right now. Have you offered to pray for somebody and you've forgotten? Happens, doesn't it? We're a bit forgetful. I forget my name sometimes. Jesus never forgets to pray for us. And he is praying for each one of us right now, our risen, living saviors at the right hand of the majesty on high, praying for us. So this is the background to this verse. And so he tells them to go to the upper room and he tells them to pray. He tells them to pray, to pray with one accord. Look at the language there. They returned, verse 12, from Jerusalem called the Mount of Olivet, which is near there. They went to the upper room where they were staying. And verse 14, all these with one accord, one mind, one heart, one vision, one focus, were devoting themselves to prayer. As they were told to wait, they didn't just wait around looking at their watches. They got down to praying, asking God to pour out the Holy Spirit upon them. Prayer is never wasted time. And how often we treat it like that, don't we? We think, oh, I'm busy today. I have things to do. I don't have time to pray. Prayer is never wasted time. 
Prayer is talking to the throne of heaven and earth. Prayer is bringing our petitions to the one who knows all things. Prayer is the arm that moves the world. Do you believe that? William Carey did. And he spent so much time in prayer before he went into it. They prayed together and they prayed with one heart. When we gather to pray as a church, prayer is important for us. We should pray individually, but we should pray together as a family, as a church with one heart to our heavenly Father. United prayer. What is the most famous prayer in all of Christendom? Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven. Sorry for the King James, that's what I was brought up in. They prayed together with one accord. This waiting process is important. Bear in mind, too, as they prayed together, they didn't know that Pentecost was going to be in 50 days. We know it's like, okay, if we have to wait 50 days, that's grand, isn't it? We can wait 50 days if we see the end and result. These guys didn't know it was going to be 50 days. Did Jesus say there, oh, by the way, guys, pray for power and it'll happen in Pentecost? Does it say that in the text? No. They had to wait for him in prayer. I wonder sometimes when we wait in God in prayer, we don't like it because it shows our utter weakness, our utter helplessness before God, doesn't it? When we have to surrender everything to God, he is sovereign, we aren't. How many of us like being delayed in aeroplanes? Did you see the queues yesterday at Heathrow as the passport gates broke down? I would have hated to be stuck in those queues. We don't like delays. We don't like waiting. Because there's nothing we can do about waiting. How many of you like being stuck in traffic? Lincoln, you guys love traffic. I have never been in a city that that you just sit there and you sort of do your crossword while you wait for the lights to change. I I don't do that, by the way. We don't like waiting. We like doing. We like rushing. We like being in control. But Jesus bids us wait. He bids us surrender to him and sometimes he makes us wait to show us and to remind us gently and not cruelly who is sovereign. Esther shows us this, does it not? I mean, have you ever read the book of Esther? You must, I wonder if Esther at any point in her life thought that she would be on a mission for God by being a beauty queen. I mean, I couldn't do that. It would raise all sorts of issues. <laughs> I mean, how did Esther think? And yet, through that beauty contest and through meeting the king, And through being married to the king, she was in the right place at the right time when the guy Mordecai could say to her, what's the verse? We all know it. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Ruth, my favorite book of the Old Testament. I love Ruth. It's a great book, isn't it? Ruth, widowed, destitute, alone. She goes out to work for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she, and the text actually says this, she happened to walk into a field. All the fields in Jerusalem, what's that famous line from, what's that film, was it Casablanca of all the bars in all the world, you walk into mine? Of all the fields in all of Jerusalem, she walks into Beowulf's field. The right place, at the right time. Why did I say this LBC? I'm excited to be down here. And I know there's a lot of excitement when new things are starting, but let us never rush ahead of God. Let us never move unless through prayer and discerning he has put us in the right place at the right time. Let us seek our heavenly father. Because when the time is right, he will move exactly. Do you remember that scene from Lord of the Rings? What is it about Gandalf? He's never too late. He's never too early. He arrives exactly when he means to, which is a great excuse for being late. (laughs) 
And so they pray and they wait on the Lord and they pour their hearts out to him. What did they pray? They prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. Secondly, as they prayed, they also organized. They prepared for growth. Look here, this scene in verse 12 down to verse 20, where they talk about getting an extra apostle to replace Judas. They needed 12 apostles to fulfill the mission. And so they organized, they prepared for growth, they pray, they taught, they listened to Jesus' teaching, all he commanded, what he'd said, where he was, what he was doing. They studied the word of God together. Look at the quotations there in verse 20. They'd clearly been reading the book of Psalms. They'd been reading Isaiah. They prayed, they studied, they organized, they formed a pot. I had a lot of fun doing this last night, so please appreciate this. They formed a pot, prayer, organizing, and teaching. What's a pot do? Oh, come on. You put plants in plots and they grow. The pot needs to be there to keep everything in the center, doesn't it? If we want God to move, if we want to expect great things from God and attempt great things for him, we need to learn the lessons here at Pentecost. We need to pray with one accord, with one heart. What's our prayer? That we would be witnesses in Lincoln, Lincolnshire to the glory of Jesus Christ. We need to organize. We need to get ourselves sorted so that God may bless us with growth. What do I mean by that? Well, let me take an example. The church I was saved in back home in Northern Ireland, they were one of the first churches ever to have a disabled ministry in Northern Ireland. They called it the Befrienders. And when my pastor started, there was nobody in the church who had any disabilities. And he started this ministry, and folk were like, well, what's the point in starting a ministry? They aren't here. He always said this, one day they might be, and we need to be ready for God to bring them in. That's what I mean by preparing for growth. And as we look at this fellowship, we want to get ready. As we pray that God will bless us with more and more young people, we need people to volunteer in our junior church and our Flaming Eagles. As we feed more and more people at the fellowship lunches, which are a great chance to fellowship together, we need more and more helpers and an extra oven for grace as well. As we seek to reach out and to stamp end, we need prayer warriors and prayer walkers. We need folk to go and tear the gospel. As we seek to love each other as a fellowship and to, to pastor each other and be a supportive unit, we need folk to befriend each other in prayer and support and visitations. We need to take the New Testament seriously. And when we do, Jesus will take us seriously. Prayer, organized teaching. Teaching is essential too. The Bible is the foundation of all we do. How many of you have heard the name James Haldane or Robert Haldane? So I would heard of Robert or James. See if I was in Scotland, they'd all be cheering. There was a man called Robert Halding who had a passion for revival, and so he decided to travel to Geneva, Switzerland, of all places. And when he was in Geneva, Switzerland, he was sitting on a park bench. See how God puts you in the right place at the right time through prayer? And as he's sitting at a park bench, he heard these theological students behind him talking about the Bible, and he said this himself from their conversation. It was clear they weren't believers. And so he said to these guys, I mean, talk about, talk about trigger revival. So he said to these guys, come and study the book of Romans with me. And so for the winter of 1816 in Geneva, these guys studied the book of Romans together. And they had a great time. They all got converted. And God poured out a revival in French-speaking Europe that lasted powerfully and longly. He prepared, he organized, he taught, and God blessed it. Wait for the Lord and his promise. Two, holy power. Chapter two there, the moment arrives. 
I mean, imagine being in Jerusalem with this. I've been in Jerusalem in the old city. It is quite close. It is quite small. I mean, nothing could happen without you knowing about it. As the apostles are praying, as they're seeking the Lord together with one accord again in one place, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The word there for mighty is the same word Luke uses in chapter 24 for the roaring of the sea. This wasn't a quiet arrival. And when God moves, he moves. Have you ever read those Psalms about how the, in fact, it was William Cooper was not God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his feet upon the, oh, come on. Cloud and rides out the storm. God arrives in power here. Two things this teaches us about the Holy Spirit and the gift of power. One, it comes as a wind, a mighty rushing wind that fills the house. Now, Old Testament scholars, you know what wind symbolizes, do you not? Imagine tomorrow I say to you guys, right, Lincoln Baptist Church, we're going to fight the French. We're always fighting the French, it's our history. We're tomorrow going off to fight the French and I'm going to give you an army. The army is this, 3,000 skeletons. How are you going to feel? Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel's told that he is going to send a mighty army to the people of Israel. And God brings Ezekiel to look at this army. And the army is a valley full of dry bones. And notice the text there, it says dry bones. Not that wet bones are any better, but dry bones. There's no hope. If, if Dr. McCoy from Star Trek was there, I'd say, Jim, these bones are dead. And yet... As Ezekiel's told to preach to this valley of dry bones, what happens? The breath, the wind comes over them. And this place where there's death and no life, all of a sudden there is life. And then he's to preach again. And as he preaches again, these animated structures come alive and the breath of God enters into him. It reminds us of creation too, does it not? When God created Adam and Eve, he breathed the life of God into them. Wind symbolizes the life-giving, creative spirit power of the living God. Jesus said that in John 3, we looked at it a few weeks back, the wind blows where it chooses, symbolizing the power of the Holy Spirit. This wind sweeps in life-giving, creative, power-giving. The word there for power in the Greek text is actually the Greek word dynamis, which folks straight away will think, does that mean dynamite? Yes, it does. But there's a slight problem with using that in this text. Dynamite wasn't invented. But what was invented? How many of you remember 1981? I don't. 1980, sorry, 1980. What happened in 1980? You get no sweets for this one, I'm afraid. What happened in 1980? That's a big question, I know. But think of, think of nature, think of power. Mount St. Helens erupted. How many of you remember Mount St. Helens erupting? It was a massive eruption. I've been to the, the crater, the site, and you still see the devastation to this day. Mount St. Helens erupted, and there was dust that scattered all over the United States. That's something similar to the Greek word for power. This power. That when we feel weak, I mean, I feel for the apostles sometimes, like we have a fellowship together here that was bigger nearly than the early church core. And imagine if Jesus had said to us, have a good look at each other. If he had said to us as Lincoln Baptist Church, guys, you're going out to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there's no transport. There's no Ryanair. There's no British Airways. There's no cars. There's a horse and a donkey. How would you feel? 
You would want some help, would you not? And so God pours out on this church that had prayed together, that had organized together, that had planned. He pours out the wind of his Holy Spirit, the creative power of God, so that nothing could stop them. Secondly, the thing of the Holy Spirit too, it comes as fa- he comes as fire. He comes as fire. Fire too reminds us of three things. Firstly, of the sheer holiness of God. This power that comes is a holy power. A power that reminds us of Exodus chapter 3 when the burning bush appeared to Moses. The bush was, was in the fire, but it was not consumed, symbolizing the holiness of God's presence. Now, when we think of holiness, we tend to think of, uh, certainly in the culture I grew up in, if somebody called you holy, it wasn't a compliment. It probably meant you're a rather pleased with yourself and maybe looked down on others. It's like what Winston Churchill once said of a bishop, there goes God for the grace of God. That'll hit some of you around lunchtime. But holiness in the Bible is never that. Holiness in the Bible means distinctness. In Isaiah 6, when God is worshipped by the seraphim and the cherubim, they say, holy, holy, holy Lord. The whole earth is filled with your glory. The holiness of God is the distinct, unique, separate nature of God. That he is holy, beautiful, holy, pure, holy, good, holy, love, holy, just, holy, merciful, holy, holy, holy. He is perfect and he is distinct. He is pure. And so this life-giving, breath-giving, creative power falls on the redeemed people of God and gives the distinctiveness of God about the people. It creates in them something that marks them as separate from the other people, not in a, in a nasty way, but in a way that they have been with Jesus. Don't you love that when the Pharisees call the, religious, the, the apostles in, in Acts chapter 3 or 4, they beat them, they cast them out, and they were cross with them. Why? Because they knew they'd been with Jesus. Wouldn't you love to be a Christian who people say about you, they've been with Jesus? I want LBC to be a church that people say about us, oh, they're mad, they've got that crazy Irishman but they've been with Jesus and his holy, life-giving, creative, redeeming, sustaining power is in the midst of them. Isaiah 32, verse 15 talks about, and we talked about this last week in John chapter 7, how in a dry and weary land, God will pour out streams of living water. Ezekiel 39, verse 29, I will not hide my face anymore from them, when I pour out my spirit upon them. This holy, life-giving power is the fulfillment of the promises that Jesus says, if you believe in me and trust in me, my Father and myself will come and make our home in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ in each one of us, the hope of glory. Christian Fred, you may be sitting there this morning, and if you're still awake, thank you. But you may be sitting there this morning, you may be thinking, goodness, I, I... I would love this, Daniel, but I feel so far from it. Trust me, this morning as your preacher, I feel the same. But that's where faith comes in. We live by faith and not by sight. William Carey was the most unlikely man to take the gospel to India. And for the first seven years of his ministry, when he got there, he had not one convert. In fact, his wife died. Yet Carey kept going. 
what kept it going. He himself said years later he would have packed it all in had it not been for the love and vision of Jesus Christ that sustained him. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, I better move on here. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, he turns, I'll finish with this point, he turns lastly to make us look at Jesus. Peter here is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He gets up. Now, I love the transformation of Peter. Peter, the man who was scared of a wee servant girl, is now preaching to a crowd, a massive crowd. We don't know how many it could be. It could easily have been 30,000. He gets up and he preaches and he says, guys, you've seen this power poured out. You've heard us speak tongues in your own language. It's the gift of God. We'll, we'll talk about that in the house scripts. You've shown us this. This is a promise from Joel. And by the way, as I'm showing you this miraculous power like the miracles, let me tell you about somebody. Because when the Holy Spirit comes and is poured out in a church, the church is marked by one thing, Christ-centeredness. The Holy Spirit is not given to glorify us. He's not given for us to make money off so-called miracles or to build ministries around ourselves. No, he comes to make much of Jesus. And at the heart of this sermon here, look at the description of Jesus. Peter uses it to preach Jesus. As we wait for the power and as the power comes, we need that power then to preach Jesus. The Holy Spirit is immensely concerned that we preach Jesus. His death for us. Verse 25, as he give himself for our sins. Friend, if you're here this morning and you feel alienated God, know that he died for you because he loved you and gave himself for you. And if you repent, if you turn from serving idols and yourself to the living God, he will redeem and save you. Because his resurrection, verse 24, proves that everything he said was true. Death in vain. I love Charles Wesley. Don't you love that hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today? Hallelujah. I'll not sing to you, don't worry. I love that line. It always makes me well up. Death in vain forbids him rise. Christ has opened paradise. The last great enemy, the thing that our culture is so afraid of that tries so hard to avoid, so hard not to talk about in polite society, that secret lurking fear of death, Jesus has destroyed the power of death, that whosoever believes in him, even though they die, yet shall they live. Isn't that a good news? Yes. And that our sins, that our follies, that our rebellion against God can be forgiven by the very God we rebelled against because of his powerful, holy love. As a church, that is the message we must always proclaim to the people of Lincoln and Lincolnshire. And as I said last week, when we're finished with them, we'll move up into Yorkshire. And then somebody told me off because I forgot about Leicester. So we'll go there as well. And then somebody else told me off because I forgot about our mission partner. So we'll go there as well. But we will go and we will proclaim the good news of our risen Savior. Lincoln Baptist Church, we have... 1.08 million people on our doorsteps. The fields are white on the harvest. Will we expect great things from the God who gives us the power of his Holy Spirit to go, to love, to serve, to proclaim the good news? And will we attempt great things for him? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, Firstly, let's 
bring it back to you. We thank you for those of us who know you, that you have proven yourself faithful to us. You have proven yourself kind. You have saved and redeemed us. You have welcomed us as prodigals, as rebels. Even like the Apostle Paul, some of us may even say we felt we were the worst, and yet you have loved us and give yourself for us. As we focus on the Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to remember that the gift is given by you and the Father, and you give us good gifts. You don't give us gifts to harm us. When we ask for a bit of bread, you don't give us a stone. And so this power we've heard about, this third person of the Godhead who is like you in character is given to us individually and as a church that when we feel weak, we are strong through the grace of God which is more than sufficient for us. When we come together as a body, we see the Spirit equipping us individually so that we are one body with many parts. We thank you for the different ministries and gifts in this fellowship. Thank you that we aren't called all to do the same thing, but we're called to the same purpose, to make much of Jesus. So bless those who are our prayer warriors. Holy Spirit, give them strength in prayer. Help them to keep their arms up in prayer. Bless those who are our encouragers, who encourage those who are despondent, downcast, weary. May they be encouragers with cheerfulness. Bless those who give practically and of their time to equip the church. Bless those with a passion for mission, locally, internationally. May they be like Kerry and may that flame continue to burn. Bless those who feed us, who bring those opportunities for fellowship, for the teas and the coffees. Lord, you're in all these things. And Lord, I know I'll have forgotten something, but you haven't forgotten anyone. And for all those in this fellowship who serve you, Holy Spirit, equip us and take us further and further to you. Help us to pray together with one accord, with one vision. Keep the unity of this fellowship, O Lord. May the main things be the main things. May your word be at the center of all we do, for it tells us of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, as you are given to us for these tasks, we pray too that you would go before us into Lincoln, up Monks Road, up Baghome Street, through Croft Street, that you would go before us and as the harvest field is ripe, you would prepare hearts that you would create opportunities that we would say a word in season to somebody who needs Jesus. That we would offer to pray with somebody who needs hope. That we would give and show that our treasure is not in what we own, but who we have in Jesus Christ. And for that, we need that holy power we've heard about. So come, Lord Jesus, and use this fellowship as we expect more from you than we could think, hope, or imagine. Help us to attempt it as well, in Jesus' name. Amen.